From the mind of a maniac. Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right, you get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose, The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, The Craving, The Caretakers, It Lives in the Attic, Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. And now, sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Cave Tennessee has more caves than any other U.S. state with near 10,000. Me and a buddy of mine who I call Captain are cave enthusiasts. We like to explore every cave we can find. We walk, crawl, and climb in the blackest of caverns just for the thrill. Not long ago, a cave guide I know clued me in on a secretive cave that nobody has been to in years. Back in the 1950s, this location was one of the standard cave tours in the region and was known for a tight, 50-foot tunnel people would have to crawl through called the Keyhole. The tunnel was so tight in spots that folks would need to wriggle their body around just to make it through. Nobody with a chest larger than 42 inches was allowed. At some point during the late 1950s, there was a ground tremor that partially collapsed the keyhole tunnel. Fortunately, nobody was in the tunnel at the time of the tremor. The cave touring company immediately closed the tour down as a safety hazard. Evidently, not many people have ever been back since. For all I know, Captain and I were the first ones to return. It was nearing nightfall when we finally found the opening. We strapped on our elbow pads, knee pads, helmets, and headlamps and journeyed deep into the long-lost cave. One of the best things about exploring this cave was that since it was once a touring cave, there were stairs, rails, and bridges that made exploring much more convenient and also gave the place a comfortable lived-in feel. Finally, we reached the keyhole. The keyhole was about five feet off the ground. Looking inside the keyhole was intimidating as it looked no wider than a sliver. Captain and I were both lean fellows, but even for us, 
I suspected we'd have a difficult time getting through, but it was worth a try. I hoisted myself up and stuck my head into the keyhole. There was no way I could just shove my way through. It was simply too tight. I was able to get my head and shoulders in, but then had to reach out with my arm to make myself slimmer and squirm my way forward. I had to continue to reach out to make myself as flat as possible. I found myself on my back, with the ceiling above me so close that it was pressing my nose down. But I trekked forward. At one point, I had to turn my head sideways to fit through. My knees were in pain because I had to keep my feet twisted to the side. If I pointed them up, they'd jam against the ceiling. I felt like I was in a collapsing coffin. Then something terrifying happened. I made a mistake by shifting my shoulder upward to try to catapult myself forward faster, but it got lodged against the ceiling. And with the way my body was twisted, I was wedged in there pretty tight and found myself completely stuck. I tried my damnedest to wiggle free, but I wasn't budging. I called back to Captain and told him of my issue. I could feel him shoving on my feet trying to dislodge me, but it was useless. I wasn't going anywhere. My shoulder was just jammed too tight against the ceiling. Now I was able to move my shoulder ever so slightly and began sliding it back and forth against the cold stone of the keyhole's jagged ceiling. Perhaps if I shaved off some layers of skin, it would free me up just enough to move forward a little more. I worked on the shoulder plan for a solid hour. I'm not sure if it was due to the skin removal or the lubricant of the blood, but I was able to scrape my shoulder forward and break free of the keyhole's constricting grasp. I popped my head into an opening and my headlamp revealed that just ahead, this little sliver of a tunnel widened to approximately three feet wide the remainder of the way. If we could both find a way to make it that far, we'd be home free. Once I got my first arm out of the vice-like grip of the keyhole, I was able to slide my shoulders through and I sprung forward into the three-foot section of the tunnel, which to me felt as big as a house. I gazed ahead and could see the end of the keyhole's tunnel. We probably only had about 30 feet to go. As I looked forward, I could hear something at the end of the tunnel. At first I thought it was water dripping, but then I realized it sounded more like tapping. A lot of tapping. It was strange. I turned back to mention to Captain that there was something unusual up ahead at the end of the tunnel. He had one arm out of the sliver of the keyhole, and I could see that he was working on pushing his head through. That's when the tremor hit. The entire cave shook for a solid five seconds. Dust and pebbles flowed from every nook and cranny within the keyhole. I could hear crunching, snapping, and then a loud crash. And then everything went silent. I let out a deep hacking cough, expelling some of the cave dust I had ingested during the tremor, and then forced my headlamp on Captain. You okay, Captain? He didn't answer, and I could see why. 
The remainder of the keyhole sliver that he was currently in collapsed the rest of the way, crushing Captain like a pancake. His arm was only being held on by a thread of flesh. There was nothing I could do, so I turned to begin my crawl out of the keyhole tunnel. Unfortunately, the back half of the tunnel had collapsed as well. Not completely, but it may as well have been. I'd say there was about six inches between the floor and the ceiling. I was stuck in a tiny section that I barely could fit in, and there was no going forward and no going back. Nobody knew we were there. Even if they did, they couldn't get me out. That's when I heard more of the weird tapping sound coming from the end of the tunnel. I turned my head sideways and pressed my cheek against the floor as I tried to look through the tunnel to see what it was. That's when I saw them. Dozens of them. They were some kind of huge insect, about the size of a piece of corn on the cob, with hard-shelled bodies and long, thick, spider-like legs. They had triangular heads and their eyes were bulbous and kept shifting around as they tried to focus on me. Their mandibles were formidable, and they kept gnashing them together, causing that tapping sound. They didn't like the light of my headlamp. They crept as close as they could to me, but stayed just out of the beam. My headlight was draining fast. I meant to change the batteries before we came into the cave, but forgot. I could see it dimming before me. The beam of light was the only thing keeping them away from me, but with each passing second, the light dimmed, the beam shortened, and the insect creatures took another step closer. It was five minutes later when my headlamp died, and they swarmed me. Oh, how I wish another tremor would collapse the cave the rest of the way, and end my suffering. My name is Helen. I'm the realtor that was tasked with selling the old Myers house. I've been in a bit of a rut lately with my sales. I think my boss saddled me with this house as some form of punishment. The Myers house became an internet sensation when the security footage of the last occupant went viral. The security camera footage in question focuses on the front of the Myers house. The footage is taken after sundown so it appears in grainy infrared night vision mode and has no audio. The video shows the home's last occupant, Thelma Myers, returning home from a date with a man. It appears to be a standard ending to an early relationship date. They chit-chat and then give each other a quick kiss before the man leaves and Thelma enters the house. Twenty minutes later in the video, the front door opens and Thelma acts as though she heard someone knock. She sticks her head outside and looks around. She doesn't appear to see anyone and goes back inside. Ten minutes later, 
The front door opens again. Thelma opens the door fast and steps outside. She appears frustrated and peers around. The impression is that she is a victim of the classic ding-dong ditch game, but from the video, we know that nobody was at the door to ring the bell or knock. She can be seen calling out, and a lip reader might be able to make out the statement, Hello? Who's out here? She seems annoyed as she goes back inside. Thirty minutes later, the front door bursts open. Thelma is now in a robe as if she's gotten into her night clothes for the evening. She runs outside and is clearly upset. She is screaming and looking around for someone. She is very distraught and goes back inside, slamming the door behind her. Fifteen minutes later, the front window's curtain near the front door is moved to the side and we could see Thelma looking out before moving backwards away from the window and the curtain falls back into place. Thirty minutes later, Thelma steps outside. She is holding a large knife. She appears lethargic. Her feet don't come off the ground as she shuffles forward as if in a daze. She moves about five steps and then stops and stares forward. She doesn't move again for 98 seconds. She then raises the knife to her neck and slits her throat. She stands motionless for several seconds as blood pours down the front of her robe. Eventually, she collapses in a heap. The video ends at that point. Questions arise as to what she was hearing that made her keep answering the door and why a woman in a seemingly normal state would suddenly become so sluggish and ultimately commit suicide. As it turns out, Thelma Myers did have a history of mental illness and had attempted suicide in the past. However, her co-worker said that she had turned a corner with her depression and that she seemed to be on a good path. The man she went out on the date with that night explained that that was their second date. He said the date went great. They had returned from a delightful dinner and a movie. They hadn't had any arguments. Everything was very positive. They were planning on going out again in just a few days. He says he never got any indication that she was in a suicidal state of mind. After her death, the house was left to her brother, who had no interest in it and wanted to sell it as soon as possible. The Myers house is an old structure that was built in the late 1800s, but it has been well maintained over the years. It's a nice two-story home with a full basement and attic and is located in a nice neighborhood. Normally, I don't think I would have had a problem selling such a home, but the stigmatism of the previous owner killing herself on camera for the world to see has made it difficult. However, it has not been due to a lack of interest. That's the other problem. My phone is constantly ringing with people wanting to make an appointment to visit the notorious Myers house. Of course, they have no interest in buying the home. They simply want to take a tour as if it's some kind of museum. Seriously, it got to the point that I felt like I should start charging admission. Instead, I decided to hold an open house. This would give all the non-serious looky-loos a chance to satisfy their curiosity and stroll around the infamous house and hopefully stop wasting my time. 
and maybe I'd get lucky and find a buyer. A few days before the open house, I decided to spend some time in the house cleaning it up so that it could be as presentable as possible. I was in the kitchen when I heard a knock on the front door. I hadn't made any appointments on this day, so wasn't expecting anyone. I walked to the front door and opened it. There was nobody there. I looked around and called out, but there was no sign of anybody, so I went back to cleaning. Ten minutes later, there was another knock. I moved swiftly and opened the door. Again, nobody. I was frustrated and walked outside. I looked around each side of the house, but there was no sign of anyone, so I went back to cleaning. Thirty minutes later, another knock. I stormed to the door and opened it. I was furious when I saw nobody there. I yelled out, Damn kids, don't you have anything better to do? You'd better not knock on this door again. I went back inside and finished up with the open house preparation. As I got my things ready to leave, I heard a whisper coming from the front of the house. I thought maybe it was coming from outside, so I looked out the window. I didn't see anybody, but I heard the voice again. It was whispering in my ear. Go to the attic. It was clear as day. I should have been terrified, but I wasn't. All I wanted to do was go to the attic, so I did. There was a door to the attic on the second floor, and a flight of ten stairs that took me up there. The attic was black. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. But I didn't care, as I was overwhelmed with a sensational feeling. All my fears and doubts were stripped away. I felt as though I had become one with this house. And then it all made sense. My wants and desires were clear, and nothing would stop me from satisfying them. Obviously, this was the case with Thelma Myers. She had gone into the attic and discovered what she truly wanted, which was to die, and she made it so. I sat down in the attic and simply enjoyed its presence. I didn't know how long I was there, nor did I care. I didn't want to leave the attic. I didn't want to leave the house. It had needs. I was still in the attic when I heard the front door open. We had an uninvited guest. I hurried down to the first floor only to find my boss, Otis, standing there with a disappointed look on his face. Where have you been? I shrugged. I've been here. Why haven't you been answering your phone? I've been trying to get a hold of you for days. What is going on? Again, I shrugged. I've been getting ready for the open house. Otis spoke sternly to me. The open house is today. That's why I'm here. Because I couldn't get a hold of you and somebody has to be here for the open house, which opens in an hour. Well, I'm here now, so you can leave. He looked furious. No, Helen. You can leave. You are no longer dependable. I'm letting you go. He opened the front door and motioned for me to leave, so I did. He left as well, mumbling something about needing to get something to eat before the open house started. I walked across the street, sat down at a bench, and watched the house. Otis made it back in about 20 minutes, and was quickly met by a couple who seemed eager to look at the house. Looky-loos. As he took the couple inside, I sat on the bench and stewed. 
What made him think he could possibly know enough to show the house? He doesn't know what its needs are. He's not the right person. I am. As I stood up and started to make my way back to the house, the couple who went into the house with Otis fled from the house in fright. Something was wrong. I hurried across the street, opened the front door, and stepped into the house. I was surprised to see two young girls standing in the hallway. They were wearing nightgowns and had large black circles painted around their eyes. They seemed freaked out when they saw me. One of them yelled, Shit! Run! They both barreled out the door past me. Then it all made sense. Somehow these two girls snuck into the house, dressed as ghosts, and intended to scare people. Apparently it worked well enough on the couple who entered the house with Otis. That's when I spotted Otis lying in the middle of the hallway, groaning and holding his head. My assumption was the girls gave him a fright as well, causing him to stumble and injure himself. I rushed to his side to see if he was alright. Otis? Are you okay? He was rubbing his head when he looked up at me and said, Helen? What are you doing here? I noticed a stack of spec sheets he had put on a table that listed various information about the house. Pathetic. He knew nothing. This was my listing, not his, and I told him as such. He let out a sigh. Helen, I fired you this morning. You don't work for me anymore. He didn't understand, and he never would. So I picked up an antique iron that was being used as a doorstop and bashed his head in with it. I barked at him as I drug his dead body into a back room. Do you know anything about this house other than what's on these spec sheets? Have you even walked through it? Have you been in the attic? I have, and now I know. I know what I want. This house. I am to take care of it. I'm to give it exactly what it wants. I straightened out my shirt, took in a deep breath, and collected myself. I had a busy day ahead of me. There were many people coming, and I needed to show them the attic. The Airplane I'm a businesswoman and I was taking a red-eye flight across country for work. I guess my flight was an extremely odd time because the airport was as dead as it gets. I arrived at the airport early so I decided to chill out in the premium lounge until boarding began. I was the only one in the lounge and rested in a comfortable chair for a little while and listened to some music on my headphones. After a short bit, I had to get up and use the restroom. After I was finished and stepped out of the restroom, I heard a loud bump coming from a closet near the restroom entrance. The outside of the closet was clearly marked storage. After another loud thud, I heard a rhythmic scratching sound followed by the loud cry of a woman. 
I wasn't sure what was going on in that storage room, but wanted to check in case the woman was in some kind of trouble. I carefully walked to the room and slowly, quietly opened the door. I was shocked by what I saw. A man and woman were having sex in the storage closet. They were so into it that they didn't even notice me standing there. As I stepped back with my hand over my mouth, I bumped into a tall man who I didn't even know was behind me. The tall man did not seem to notice me. He was off in his own little world as he stared coolly at the couple having sex. I guessed him to be some kind of voyeuristic pervert. I hurried out of the lounge and was happy to see that boarding for my flight had begun. After giving the attendant my ticket, I began my journey down the long walkway to the plane. As I walked, I casually gazed about and noticed the tall man from the lounge walking behind me. He was expressionless and seemed to be in a bit of a daze. I was hoping this guy wasn't sitting next to me. As I got to the airplane, the flight attendant gave me a quick greeting and then stared at the strange tall man behind me for a moment before saying, Hello, Captain. Captain? I turned around and looked more closely at the tall man. I didn't even realize he was in a pilot's uniform. He didn't acknowledge the flight attendant. He just sluggishly entered the cockpit and sat down. As I watched him start to fidget with some of the buttons in the cockpit, I noticed a familiar-looking woman, also dressed as a pilot. She smiled and said hello to the flight attendant, and that's when it dawned on me. That was the woman I had just seen having sex in the storage closet. I watched as she sat down in the cockpit next to the pilot. This was the co-pilot. She was all smiles and spoke in a very friendly tone. Hi, sweetheart. She then gave the pilot a quick kiss. They were a couple. She could tell that something was bothering him and asked him what was wrong. That's when the cockpit door closed. After what I just witnessed, I was not comfortable with the pilot situation, but it was a short flight and I had to get to my destination. Since I didn't have much in the way of options, I just hoped for the best. We had taken off without any issues and were in flight for approximately 30 minutes when I, along with every other person on the plane, could hear the tall pilot shouting within the cockpit. The co-pilot then let out a fear-filled scream and I heard a gunshot. Before anyone on the plane had a chance to properly freak out, the tall pilot stepped out of the cockpit. The front of his shirt was spattered with blood. In the cockpit behind him, I could see the dead body of the co-pilot strewn out over the controls of the plane. The captain stood lethargically and stared out at nothing. A gun in his hand dangled loosely by his side. He then took in a deep breath and very quickly placed the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. His brain splattered on the wall behind him, and all I could think was, I sure hope one of the other passengers knows how to fly a plane.
If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. Something's in my basement. I recently bought a new house. It's a two-story older home. There's a nice-sized living room that connects to an old kitchen. The upstairs is simply two bedrooms and a bathroom. And there's a full basement. The basement has a concrete floor and several shelving units, giving me the impression that one of the previous owners was big into preserves or pickling things. I was able to get the house for a great price due to the unsettling events surrounding the previous owners. They were a couple in their late 60s named Fred and Lillian. They had lived in the house for approximately a decade. The couple was well known in the neighborhood for their arguments. Apparently they fought constantly. Neighbors said it was not uncommon to hear shouting late into the night and the police had been called out many times. One day, about three months ago, Lillian left Fred. The neighbors were all pleased as things instantly became peaceful, relaxed, and quiet. They said Fred changed after his wife left. He moped around a lot and would spend hours sitting outside on the front porch nearly lifeless, staring out at nothing. The late-night shouting was replaced by late-night weeping. The next-door neighbors stopped over to see how Fred was holding up. They said that Fred seemed weighted down by depression and had tears in his eyes as he told them, I never realized I can't live without Lillian. That night, Fred slit his wrists in his bathtub. The body wasn't discovered until weeks later when someone reported a horrible stench emanating from the house. And because of all that, plenty of people who would have otherwise been quite interested in the house were turned off, allowing me to swoop in and nab it for a nice below-market price. I was thrilled and I'm quite the handyman, so what little work the house needed I was able to polish off with ease. I had been living in the house without incident for approximately one month. That was about the time I started to notice a foul, decaying odor. I knew it could not have been a lingering odor from Fred's dead body. I would have detected that when I initially looked at the place, or some other time during the past month of living in the house. It took me a little while to track it down, but the odor seemed to be originating from the basement. I figured I'd go down there and find a dead rodent of some sort, but I searched all over and couldn't find a damn thing. The smell seemed to be strongest from the right corner of the basement. I figured some small animal had got caught between the walls and died. If that was the case, the stench wouldn't last much longer. It was later that week when I was woken up by weeping sounds. It was quite loud. At first I thought there was somebody sitting outside on my front porch crying, but when I opened the front door and stepped out, there was nobody there. 
but the crying continued. It was coming from inside my house. I followed the sorrowful sobbing and realized it was coming from the basement. I opened the basement door and just stood silently and listened for a moment. It seemed to be deriving from the right side of the basement. I flicked on the stair lights and walked down the narrow wooden staircase to the cold cement basement. I pulled a string at the bottom of the stairs that lit a bulb which gave fair lighting to the majority of the basement. The basement was tidy. I hadn't had a chance to mess it up yet. I had several boxes down there, but those were all neatly stacked on the left side of the basement. One last distressed bellow echoed through the room, and then all went silent. I stepped toward where I was positive the crying came from, and it dawned on me that it was the same region of the basement that the odor was coming from. The next night, something else woke me up. The sound of scratching. It was rather loud. I would have thought it was my dog scratching on the back door to be let outside, but I don't have a dog. My initial thought was that one of the neighbor's dogs was confused and was trying to get into my house instead of their own, so I marched downstairs and approached the back door. That's when I realized the scratching was not coming from the back door. It was coming from the basement. I opened the basement door and looked down into the darkness. The scratching was loud, distinct, and constant. I flicked on the stairwell light, which allowed me to see my way down the stairs, and stepped onto the concrete floor. As I fumbled for the string to light the basement, I could hear deep, raspy breaths accompanying the scratching. There was definitely somebody in my basement. When I grasped the string and pulled the light on, everything went silent, and the basement was empty. I walked around and looked in every conceivable spot someone could hide, but I found nobody. I wondered what was going to wake me up the next night, but nothing did. Instead, I fell into a deep sleep and found myself having the most realistic dream I had ever experienced. I was sinking into the soft earth. I flailed away trying to pull myself out of the ground but kept plummeting further. I found myself in a pit, covered with wriggling worms and squirming maggots. I could feel them twisting and turning in my mouth, down my throat, into my ears and infesting my brain. I could feel a heavy, thick, cold liquid pouring over my body, weighing me down, trapping me underground forever. I started screaming over and over, let me out, let me out. I awoke and leapt out of bed. I felt a sense of relief wash over me as I realized it was all just a horrible nightmare. But then I heard a voice, a loud sinister voice shouting, let me out. I was no longer dreaming. The voice was real, and I could tell that it was coming from the basement. Let me out. Let me out. 
I raced down the stairs and into the basement. As I reached for the string to pull the light on, I heard the menacing voice one more time from the right corner of the basement. Let me out! When I turned on the light, the voice went silent. But I noticed something that I hadn't before. There was a large section of the right corner of the basement that looked like it had been recently cemented over. The cement was smoothed out well, and the color matched perfectly with the rest of the floor, but when I looked closely, I could spot a few rough spots around the edges that gave it away. Something was under there. The next day I rented a jackhammer and tore up the cement from the right corner of the basement. I found the dead body of a woman. She was wearing a locket with her name on it. Lillian. It turns out Lillian didn't leave Fred. Fred killed her and buried her body in the basement. I alerted the authorities. They removed the body and had it cremated. I have not experienced any paranormal activity in the house since. Psycho Caller In the 1980s, there was a popular late-night radio show in Chicago called Late Night with Dr. Berman. Dr. Berman was a psychiatrist and would take live calls. People would ring in with an array of different problems that he would try to help them with. His catchphrase when answering new calls was, What's your problem? Over the years, he answered countless bizarre calls, but his most unusual call was received on May 17, 1985. The following is the transcript of the call. Hello, you're on Late Night with Dr. Berman. What's your problem? Hello. What's your problem, caller? How can I help you tonight? I miss my girls. Your girls? And who are your girls? Do you mean your daughters? My girls. I have three of them. And where are your girls now, caller? I don't know. I think they took them away. Who took them away? The police. Why did the police take your girls away? I guess they didn't like me having them in my house. Where did the police take your girls? Away. Okay, caller, if you want me to help you, you'll have to elaborate on what you're talking about. Now please, tell me what your problem is. I need more girls. And where do you plan to get these girls? I'll just go out and get me some. 
<laughs> well, you can't just go out and take random girls. That's called kidnapping. That's a crime. I don't care. I'll go out and I'll find me some girls, and I'll stick my knife in their necks and they'll be mine. Okay, before you do that, caller, let's talk a little longer. Um, let's see if we can find out more about why you feel the need to do this. I enjoyed our conversation. Uh, wait, wait, caller, don't hang up. Hello? Hello? At that point, the call ended. The radio station successfully traced the call, and police were dispatched to the address. The location of the call was the Sherman Parks Mental Institution. The origin of the call was a security desk. When the police arrived, they found the security guard with his throat slit. After checking the patient logs, they concluded that one patient had escaped. The escaped patient's name was Rudolph Baker. He was institutionalized for murdering three women. He positioned their dead bodies around his house and would interact with them as if they were alive. He referred to them as his girls. Rudolph Baker was never recaptured. The Keys I'm what one might refer to as a struggling actor. I'm in my late 20s and I get just enough acting work to barely pay the rent and feed myself. I was working a theater gig. It was a five night a week play that was scheduled to run for a month. Maybe more if it were successful enough. The name of the play was Head of the Family. It was a goofy comedy about a mafia family. I played a hitman. The Saturday night showing ran pretty late. Normally, after we took our bows, I would change clothes and eat a little snack before I left. But tonight I was tired, so I stayed in my costume, which consisted of black pants and a long leather jacket. My hair was still slicked back with grease like my character wore it. I'd shower and wash it all out once I got home. I headed across the street to the parking garage where I kept my rust bucket of a car. The audience had already mostly cleared out and the parking garage was quiet and empty. I took an elevator up to the fourth floor where my car was parked. As the elevator doors opened and I stepped out, I was startled when a tall man wearing a long, navy blue jacket and hat rushed toward me. He grabbed my wrist pressed something cold into my hand, and whispered into my ear, Space 437. I turned to question the mysterious man, but he rushed past me into the elevator, and the doors closed behind him. It all happened so fast, it, it was taking my mind a second to catch up. 
I gazed down at my hand to see what the man had placed in it and saw a set of car keys. What the hell was this for? Then I remembered he said Space 437. I looked at the number of the closest spot to me. It was Space 421. So I started walking down the aisle until I reached Space 437. I gasped. Sitting in the parking space was a brand new BMW 8 Series convertible. I checked the keys in my hand and confirmed that they had the BMW insignia on them. Now obviously the guy who gave me the keys mistook me for someone else, probably because I was still in my Hitman costume. And I knew the wisest decision I could make would be just to drop the keys and walk away. But there was no way in the world I wasn't going to at least take this baby for a spin around the block. I hopped in, adjusted the seat, and started her up. This thing purred like a kitten. I hit the gas and peeled rubber as I tore down the ramp of the parking garage. This sucker really hugged the corners. As I exited the parking garage, I floored it and then skidded to a stop in front of the theater when I saw my pal Kenny exiting. Kenny played the character of Giovanni, the bumbling son of the Mafia boss. The joke was that Giovanni was a complete ignoramus who had no business being in the Mafia. But he was the son of the boss, so he had to hold an important position. And the hilarity ensues. He played the part brilliantly. Kenny was shocked when he saw me in the BMW. Where the hell did you get this thing? I told him to hop in and we started driving around the small city with the top down. This car handled like a dream. We drove around for a good 30 minutes or so and then I headed back for the parking garage. I was just about to pull into the garage when I heard Kenny say, Hey, what's this? I looked over to see that he was referring to a post-it note that was stuck on the dashboard. It looked like a message. I asked him what it said. He picked it up and read it to me. Package waiting for you at the Drexel Hotel, room 1742. He then held up a hotel key that was attached to the note. Kenny was nervous as he spoke. Okay, the fun's over. I think you should just park the car back where you found it. I scoffed at his apprehension. Are you kidding? I want to see what the package is. I screeched the car around a curb and zoomed toward the Drexel Hotel, all the while having to listen to Kenny constantly remind me that we shouldn't be doing this. The Drexel was a fancy hotel in the heart of downtown. I parked in the back and we entered through a side door and took an elevator to the 17th floor. Kenny thought this was all a bad idea and was sweating bullets. What if we run into someone? What if someone starts questioning us? Just play it cool. How? Just use your acting talents. Pretend like you're in the mob or something. Play your character, Giovanni. Giovanni? He's a boob. He's a complete dimwit. He's not really a mafia guy. That's the point of the play. That's why it's funny. Okay, okay, then just don't say anything. I'll do all the talking. You just try to look mean. I don't play a good mean guy. When I try to look mean, people think I look nervous. Will you stop worrying? Come on, let's get the package. 
We walked down the hall until we got to room 1742. We stood outside the door for a moment and listened for any sounds coming from within, but it was silent. I was kind of nervous as I slipped the key into the door, and the indicator light above the handle lit up green. What was in this room? I turned the handle and pushed the door open. The room was dark and quiet. It had a subtle, clean linen scent. I felt around on the inside of the wall and held the door open while I flicked on the light. I didn't see or hear any signs of anyone in the room, so we entered. It was just an ordinary-looking hotel room with two queen-size beds that were both made up and untouched. The only thing out of the ordinary was the six-foot rectangular black metal box lying on one of the beds. It reminded me of a cheap coffin. Kenny echoed my sentiments. On top of the box were two flashlights and a sheet of paper. I picked up the paper and read the message that was scribbled on it. Take the package to 237 Piper's Pike Lane. Instructions and payment behind the house. I looked at Kenny, who was emphatically shaking his head and saying, Nope, 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 nope. I held up my hands to try to calm him down as I spoke. Look, normally I'd agree with you, but it said payment. That means money. I could really use some money right now, couldn't you? I'm a struggling actor too, of course I could. But I'm not willing to risk my life for it. Okay, look, let's just take the box to the address and see how things look. If it seems like it's an unsafe situation, we'll abort. After a few minutes of persuading, I got Kenny to agree and we both picked up an end of the box and carried it out of the hotel room. The box was heavy. I asked Kenny what he thought may be in it, but he cut me off and just kept repeating, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. We placed the box in the back of the BMW and headed toward our next destination. Once we reached Piper's Pike Lane, I realized that we were not in the best part of town. I really didn't feel too comfortable driving this nice of a car around this seedy area. I stopped in front of the house with the address of 2379. It was abandoned and it was so dilapidated, it looked like it was about to fall over. Seriously, the structure was visibly slanted. The windows had been boarded up so long that the wood was rotting. As dodgy as this area seemed, there wasn't anyone around and it was quiet, so I talked Kenny into helping me carry the box behind the house per the instructions. We each grabbed an end of the box, hoisted it out of the BMW, and made our way through the overgrown yard to the back of the house. I shined my flashlight around and immediately saw what we were supposed to find. A large rectangular hole had been dug in the ground. It was about five feet deep. There were two shovels stuck in the soft dirt surrounding the hole. There was another note under one of the shovels. It said, bury the package, wait for payment. Kenny was beginning to freak. We should get the hell out of here. I pleaded with him. Look, we've come this far. Let's just bury this thing and collect the payment. 
I don't know how, but I got Kenny to reluctantly agree, and we began carrying the box toward the hole in the ground. As we got ready to lower the box into the ground, Kenny stumbled and lost his grip. Luckily, the box tumbled right down into the hole in the ground. But unfortunately, its contents spilled out. Kenny quickly turned away. He refused to look at what it was that we had been hauling around with us. But he couldn't stop asking. It's a dead body, isn't it? I know it is. I know it's a dead body. Am I right? It's a dead body, isn't it? I shined my light down into the hole and got a good look at what it was that was inside the box. I looked over to Kenny. I took in a deep breath and told him. No, it's not a dead body. I wasn't lying. A dead body implies one whole dead body. What was actually in the box were pieces of multiple bodies. Hands, legs, arms, heads, torsos. It was a medley of murder. I told Kenny to stay away and take a break while I buried it. My adrenaline was pumping like a madman and I finished in no time. Just as I finished placing the last shovel of dirt over the hole, I heard a deep voice bellow from the side of the house. Which of you guys is Vinny? I stepped next to Kenny and we watched together as a mountain of a man in a leather jacket with black wavy hair approached us. I nudged Kenny and whispered to him, Look mean. My heart was beating out of my chest, but I just took a deep breath and started playing my hitman character from the head of the family play. Me, I'm Vinny. The big man glanced me over and then looked at Kenny. What's with this guy? Why does he seem so nervous? I looked sharply at Kenny, who kind of shrugged. He was trying his best. Well, don't worry about it. Uh, we did the job. Now how about the payment? The big man smirked at me, reached into his pocket and pulled out a huge wad of bills and started slapping them against his hand. There must have been ten grand there. He stared coldly at me while holding a sly smile. You said you were Vinny, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm Vinny. That's funny because just before I arrived here, I got a call from Vinny. He said he was late and missed the drop. I could feel beads of sweat running down my forehead. I can only imagine what kind of shape Kenny was in. The poor guy was probably about to keel over, but I dared not look. I was just trying my best to play it cool, but I could feel myself beginning to tremble with fear as the big man slowly reached down into his jacket pocket. I was seconds away from pleading for my life when I noticed the big man withdraw nothing more than a pen and paper from his pocket and scribble something down. You two do good work. If you ever want another job, call this number. The big man gave me the slip of paper that had a phone number on it. He also handed over the cash. That was it. Somehow, Kenny and I survived that crazy night. We're both still struggling actors, but now we have a nice side gig that pays quite well. Hey everyone, 
If you're enjoying the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, we hope you'll support the show. The show is a lot of work, and your support is greatly appreciated. There are several ways you can support the show. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. Thank you so much. The Roswell Incident. What really happened? In July of 1947, a ranch foreman named Mac Brazel noticed an odd debris field scattered over the Foster Ranch, which was located approximately 30 miles from Roswell, New Mexico. Brazel reported the wreckage to Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox, who then contacted the Roswell Army Airfield, also known as the RAAF. Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel and two others visited and inspected the crash site. They transported much of the debris back to Roswell. Shortly after Marcel and the others returned with the debris, a RAAF public information officer issued a press release stating that they had recovered a flying disc. The release was reported by numerous news outlets, including the Roswell Daily Record. The following day, a press conference was held, and the Army officially recanted that story and insisted that the recovered debris was that of a downed high-altitude weather balloon. Most people accepted the official government version of the story, and the report of the recovered flying disc quietly faded away. In 1978, intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel, who visited the crash site and took part in the Army press conference, went on record stating that the weather balloon story was a cover-up and that the debris he recovered was, quote, not anything from this earth. Upon Major Marcel's statement, several other people came forward claiming that they too had information that proved the object in question was not a weather balloon, but was in fact an alien spacecraft. Many witnesses claimed that they actually saw alien bodies. Much mystery still surrounds the events that took place near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Countless people, including politicians and even presidents, have demanded more information regarding the incident. But to this day, there still have not been satisfactory answers as to what exactly happened in the desert on that historic day. Until now. The following are leaked top-secret transcripts of interviews with several people who directly participated in the events surrounding the Roswell incident. The transcripts do not reveal who is conducting the interviews, and the names of those being interviewed has been omitted, but the transcripts have been deemed by experts to be authentic. Cleanup Crew Start of Interview 
please state your name and your military position for the record. Uh, my name is and I'm a in the United States. What was your role in the Roswell incident? I was part of the cleanup crew sent to remove the debris from the site in question. How many were part of this cleanup crew? <laughs> a lot. Were you cleaning up remains from a weather balloon? Um, among other things. So the army's story about the weather balloon was true? Uh, partially true, but extremely misleading. Can you tell us what kind of debris you were cleaning up that day? Uh, parts of a weather balloon, parts of a missile, and parts of a craft. Can you please elaborate? Well, the night before the debris was discovered, some people reported a loud crash. Well, that was a missile exploding on the Foster Ranch. It was a mistake. It was a test missile that was targeted for a military test site, but it went drastically off course and hit the Foster Ranch. A surveillance balloon was sent out to locate where the missile hit and to determine the damage. They were damn lucky that thing hit a desert ranch out in the middle of nowhere. Anyhow, those surveillance balloons were extremely experimental and didn't function well. They were partially motorized and could be controlled remotely. It, it did find the location that the missile struck, but before they could assess the damage, the balloon malfunctioned and crashed. Not an uncommon occurrence with those pieces of garbage. When the rancher contacted the sheriff, and he in turn contacted the RAAF, they sent Major Marcel out there to evaluate the situation. He was the one who found it. Found what? Well, the craft. The alien spacecraft. Please go on. When the missile hit the ground and exploded, it created a large crater and uncovered this craft that had been buried under the ground. Please describe the craft. I, I didn't actually see it. I mean, they didn't let us near the crater. I was just there to clean up. But a buddy of mine who had higher clearance, he was able to get a quick look at it. What he saw was only partially uncovered. He just said it was very smooth and shiny. But I did handle pieces of the spacecraft. Elaborate. Well, as part of the cleanup crew, there were three different types of debris we were to collect and separate. There was balloon debris, missile debris, and some debris that belonged to the craft. I guess when the missile exploded, it damaged the craft some and some bits of it flew over the desert. So we had a section to put balloon bits in, and a section to put missile fragments in, and a guarded section to put parts of the craft in. And I, I did find one small part of the craft. Please describe it. It was an even square. I'd say about six inches by six inches. The best way I could describe it is it was a lot like aluminum foil. It was thin, weightless, but very smooth. And you could fold it and squeeze it like aluminum foil, but it would spring right back into place. And it showed no signs of having been folded or crumpled like would be the case with aluminum foil. And it was cold. It was really cold, like, like if you put a piece of metal in a freezer for a couple hours and then took it out. It was, it was cold like that, but, but it wasn't frozen. There was no condensation or anything like that on it. It, it was bone dry. 
And, and that was it. We, we cleaned up the spot, signed non-disclosure agreements, and it was made very clear to us that we were never to talk to anyone about this. Nobody. Not friends, family. We weren't even supposed to talk about it again with the others who were there. We were supposed to pretend like it never happened. End of interview. Transporter. Please state your name and position for the record. Uh, my name is and I'm with the United States. How were you involved in the Roswell incident? I was a transporter. My job was to transport the disc from the Foster Ranch to the base. Please describe your experience. Uh, sure. Uh, do you mind if I smoke? Go right ahead. <clears throat> Okay, I was uh, sent to the Foster Ranch after the cleanup crew had finished removing the debris. How many transporters were there? Oh, several, several. I, I was driving a flatbed. Continue. Well, we arrived at the ranch and were stopped at a specific location on the road, but we could see what was happening on the ranch. What was happening? And there were a bunch of bulldozers and tractors with backhoes. They were all uncovering something out in the middle of that ranch. I mean, by the time I got there, they were at the tail end of uncovering the object. While I waited, a heavy lift operator was brought in. It hovered over the crater, and they attached something to the cable, and what it removed just boggled my mind. What was it? I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a flying saucer. That's what it was. Please describe it. It was saucer-shaped, thin, about 30 feet across. I was instructed to step away from my vehicle as they lowered it onto the flatbed, covered it up, and fastened it in. But while it was sitting on the bed of my truck, before they covered it up, I got a pretty good look at it. It was smooth as glass with a highly reflective surface, almost like a mirror. There were splotches in portions of it where the reflective coating had kind of shattered off from the explosion of the missile. The spots I saw underneath that shiny coating were solid black, like tar. Then, yeah, they, they covered it up and strapped it in. Did you see anything else? Well, I was so enthralled at what they were putting on my truck that I didn't really look around at the other transport vehicles until the saucer was all strapped in. I didn't see much of interest. Some, some of the other trucks had trailer covers, so I didn't see what had already been loaded in them. I did see them loading some debris in one, and, well, I did see something strange. Go on. As I looked at one of the cargo-covered trucks, I saw them placing small... Well, it looked like a child's coffin. I saw them placing some of those into one of the cargo trucks. But I don't, I don't know what was in them. I, I mean, I, I don't really know if they were coffins. That's just what I thought when I saw them. So, they were just so small. What did you do then? Well, I followed orders. I took the saucer to the base. I pulled it into one of the largest hangars on the base. I was told that my assignment was complete. I was thanked for a job well done and left the hangar. I was ordered never to speak of what I saw to anyone. And I followed that order until today. 
This is the first time I've talked about this. End of interview. Nurse. Start of interview. Please state your name and position at the time of the incident. My name is and I was a nurse for the U.S. on the base. Describe what you saw on the day of the incident. It started out as a normal day. I was treating an officer who burned his arm. Then all hell broke loose. The rear doors to the hospital opened and a parade of people came in. There were a lot of MPs stationed around certain sections of the hospital, not allowing anybody to pass. Something major was happening. I had my patient in an exam room near the back of the hospital, and the door to the room was slightly ajar, so I could see several soldiers wheeling in multiple gurneys with small coffin-like objects on them. It was then that the MPs entered our room and ordered my patient and me to move to a room toward the front of the hospital. I passed by a nearby exam room as an official was entering it. Between the time of him opening the door and closing it behind him, I caught a glimpse of something in that room. What did you see? At first I thought it was a child. It was such a small body and was very human-like. But the head, there was something about the head that was just off. It was too big, and the eyes, they were large and black. It was, it just, it just, it didn't look human. Some officer with red hair saw me pausing to look into the room and lost it on me. He was screaming at the top of his lungs for me to vacate the area and forget everything I saw. It was really scary. End of interview. Doctor. Start of interview. Do you remember the day in question? Oh, I'll never forget it. Chaos. Pure chaos. Please explain. I was a doctor on call that day. I, I knew something serious had happened due to the chaotic nature of it all. People running frantically, military police being posted at the entrance of every corridor, not allowing anyone to pass. Officers barking orders left and right. It was a mess. Who approached you? A high-ranking official. His name was... I could tell he was frazzled by something. He asked me to come into one of the exam rooms and take a look at a body that they had found in the desert. I entered the room and I... Well, I'll never forget what I saw. Please describe what you saw. A creature... A humanoid creature. It was lying on its back on an exam table. It had some form of clothing over its body, some type of jumpsuit. It was dark gray in color, unusual material, similar to the rough side of Velcro. The first thing I noticed was its hands, so long and slender, five fingers and one thumb, although the thumb was very finger-like as well, and it had no fingernails. Skin was very pale, very light shade of gray. 
The clothing it was wearing kept me from seeing its body, arms, legs, and feet well, but the outfit was form-fitting, and I could see that the arms and legs were extremely thin, as if there were barely any muscle mass surrounding its skeleton. Then I turned my focus to its head, as large and bulbous. It had a nose in the middle of its face, but it was diminutive. It was mostly small nostrils. Its mouth was nothing more than a slit curved into a slight frown. It had small, jagged, what I assume were ear holes on each side of its head, but possessed no outer ear whatsoever. And its eyes. Any possibility that this was a human being was eliminated by its eyes. They were large, oval, and solid black. My initial assumption was that the black of the creature's eye was some kind of shield or cover, similar to membrane, but much thicker and stiffer. What were your orders? <laughs> orders. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what they were. Orders. I was told sharply to perform an autopsy on the creature. I wasn't quite sure where to begin, but ultimately decided to begin with a stethoscope. With the creature still clothed, I placed the stethoscope on its stomach and various places on its chest. That's when I made the discovery that shocked everyone. It wasn't dead. It was alive. It seemed to be... hibernating. End of interview. Base Commander Start of Interview Name and position, please. My name is I was the base commander for the and this is where they brought everything initially. Can you be more specific? What is everything? One alien spacecraft or disk Six alien bodies, originally presumed dead, later determined to be in a form of hibernation. Tell me about the alien craft. It was a flying saucer, a disc-shaped object that was completely solid and smooth. No windows, no door, no nothing. It was shiny. You could see your reflection in it. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I can't tell you how they got the thing open, but they did. There was no visible entry area, and no cracks or marks or anything to indicate a door or an opening. It was something to do with the crazy metal coating. When the door was shut, it would congeal together, like a drop of water absorbing another drop. <laughs> the technology was so far advanced, beyond anything we had ever seen. Describe the interior of the craft. Uh, smooth. Gunmetal gray, all in one piece. No individual seats or tables, no cracks or crevices, just one solid piece. There were seats and such, don't get me wrong, but they were all molded as one continuous piece. They weren't attached to the floor, they were part of the floor. There were six seats that encircled the center. There were, there were no steering wheels, no handles or bars, levers, nothing like that. There were flat panels in front of each seat, but they were smooth. There was nothing inside that gave me any indication as to how these vehicles were operated. Do you have any idea 
why it was buried in the ground. None, none. We contracted some archaeologists to examine the ground the craft was buried in. They determined that it was under the ground for at least 2,000 years. But as to why, I have no idea. Tell us about the aliens. Oh, odd little humanoid creatures. Not human. Not not of this earth. Uh, that we know of. Uh, I wasn't part of the examination. I just looked at them and listened to the reports. We were all in shock, and honestly, uh, a little frightened by the fact that they were alive and in some kind of hibernated state. Where are the disk and its inhabitants now? Oh, I, d I don't know. I don't know. I took orders from the Commander-in-Chief to release all collected evidence in relation to this incident to a top-secret department. And I did so. A fleet of vehicles showed up. I was approached by two men in black suits. One had a black hat and dark sunglasses on. These were those men in black characters that people have heard about. This was them. I handed over everything to them as instructed. Where did they go? I don't know specifically, but they took all the recovered material and alien bodies through the underground tunnels to another base. I have no idea where they went from there. Underground tunnels? Yes, several military bases have massive underground tunnels that lead to other nearby bases. That way we can move top-secret items to and fro without worrying about any eyes being on them. <laughs> there are tunnels running all over underneath the country. There are some people who never travel above ground. Let me tell you something. The amount of things out there that the majority of people have no idea about would blow minds. End of interview. Men in black. Start of interview. Please state your name and your position. My name is... I'm a top operative of the United States Department of... and... Specifically, I'm the head of the project referred to as Project... What did you do with the evidence gathered in Roswell? We took it to our facility. We find that it's best to keep everything under one roof, so to say. Anything presumed to be extraterrestrial in origin is exclusive to our department. Other departments know nothing other than what's out of our control. Roswell is a prime example of that. Many people came in contact with the craft, the bodies, the debris, but none of them know more than what they encountered. Would we prefer that they didn't know as much as they do? Absolutely. But that's out of our control. What is in our control is making sure we do not divulge any more information than what is absolutely necessary. This tactic has kept the majority of the planet's population in the dark. This way we know exactly who knows what. Is this the most significant evidence of alien technology you have encountered? Yes, it was the only fully intact flying disc and living alien beings we have ever had in our facility. But you have had other artifacts? We have recovered a partial craft and fossilized dead aliens. 
They appear to have crashed tens of thousands of years ago, but were preserved in a tar pit. We also recovered a fully intact shell of a flying disc. Shell? The strange smooth metal that covers the flying disc. The shell was found at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. After exhaustive examination, we have determined that the element that makes up this shell is not of this world. The shell seems to be more than a protective shield. Apparently it can be shed if damaged and a new one is generated. It can also be used as a defense mechanism. If a hostile situation occurs, the shell can be shed and will glide in another direction as a distraction. It's not unlike when a salamander sheds its tail and the discarded tail wiggles to distract predators. How do you know all of this? The alien told us. The hibernating aliens are awake? Yes, and I have been in direct communication with one of them. One of them has communicated with you? Unquestionably. How? It communicates telepathically. Somehow it understands what I want to know, without me having to utter a word. If it chooses to provide an answer, it inserts it into my mind. Inserts what into your mind? The answer to my question. It is suddenly within my mind as knowledge. I don't understand. I wouldn't expect you to, and I wish I could convey it to you more clearly. Did the alien communicate with you as to how they wound up buried in the earth? Yes, it was thousands of years ago when their craft suffered a catastrophic failure, leaving them stranded on a primitive planet. They chose to hibernate until their kind rescued them. Why such a long hibernation? That was my question as well. First of all, what our interpretation of a long time is does not conform to their interpretation of such. Even so, I don't think they intended to hibernate for that extended a period of time. The answer was placed in my mind, but it was difficult for me to fully decipher. From what I could understand, I think they... overslept. <laughs> what do they want? Why are they here? They have been here since the dawn of man, curious to witness the development of an extremely primitive species. They consider us to be primitive? Extremely, which is one of the reasons they hold concern. Concern? Please elaborate. In the late 1940s, there was an incredible influx of flying saucer sightings. Some refer to it as a flying saucer craze. It is not a coincidence that the sightings became so prevalent after the detonation of atomic bombs. The human species on Earth is in its infancy. These alien beings view us like we would view the Neanderthal man. So think to yourself, if cavemen had access to nuclear weapons and could detonate them with the push of a button, wouldn't you be concerned? Yes, I would. 
We aren't currently near a stage as to where we could be a threat to anything outside of our own planet. But if we reached that kind of breakthrough while still holding what they would consider primitive mentality, they would likely step in before tragedy could occur. Step in. Eradicate the human species from this planet. We're far from possessing that kind of technology, so that's more of a long-term threat that is being monitored. And in the short run, is eradication of our species conceivable? It is. It's possible they may allow us to destroy ourselves. But I also got the impression that with the abundance of other life forms on Earth, they may step in on their behalf. Are the aliens still being kept at your facility? No, they have departed, but they did not leave without a warning. Please elaborate. While their motivation is primarily curiosity, there are other species of aliens who have been observing our planet with far more nefarious intentions. What intentions would those be? To conquer us and inhabit the planet for themselves in some capacity, or to mine our planet for resources. Do we have more information on those species? Not thoroughly, but we have enough photographic and video evidence to conclude that every extraterrestrial life form we have encountered could overtake us with ease if they chose to do so. Most people go about their lives completely oblivious to the fact that we are living in the most dangerous of times. End of interview. If you like scary stories and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's maniacontheloose.com slash books. Stranded. This happened back in the 1980s. I was in my late teens and was driving cross-country from Tennessee to California to visit a friend in college. Sure, I could have flown, but I wanted the experience of driving across country and particularly through the desert. In hindsight, it was a horrible idea, especially since my piece of junk car was unreliable. But I was an ignorant young man and made the journey anyway. Everything went fairly smooth until I hit the Arizona desert. Something about that relentless desert sun didn't agree with my car, and it began to overheat, shake, rattle, and ultimately died. This wasn't good because I was in the middle of a desert road. I hadn't seen another car in hours. I took a look under the hood and quickly determined that there wasn't a thing I could do to get my junker moving again. So I began to walk. I walked for hours and hours. The sun was beating down on me and zapping my strength rapidly. Sweat was pouring down my face. As the energy evaporated from my body, 
My pace slowed, and I began to stagger and feel dizzy. Then I finally heard the sound I had been hoping for. The hum of a distant engine. As it approached, I turned and waved my hands. The vehicle slowed and stopped in front of me. It was an incredibly old, rusty Chevy delivery truck from the early 1940s. A few lucky patches of color yet to be overtaken by the rust revealed that at one time this vehicle was dark green. I lethargically staggered to the passenger side door of the ominous vehicle and peered in at the incredibly intimidating driver. He was a tree trunk of a man wearing a black tank top and a sweat-stained straw hat. He wasn't a bodybuilder type, just an extremely thick, hulking man. He had weathered, leathery, beef-jerky skin. He spoke with a menacing, hoarse voice. That your car broken down back there? I nodded. Get in. I was a small, frail twig of a man and couldn't fight worth a lick. But as scary as the situation was, I had no choice. I would die out in the desert without any assistance, so as much as I didn't want to go, I got into the truck. He immediately wrapped his catcher's mitt of a hand around a bottle of water and handed it to me. Drink up. I chugged the bottle of water, took a few breaths, and asked him if he'd be kind enough to take me to the next town. Next town is Coopertown, about 50 miles up the road. It's 30 miles out of my way. But you look so cute and helpless. I'll inconvenience myself for you. Shivers ran down my spine the moment he called me cute. But I just nodded and hoped the drive would go by fast and that he wouldn't be very talkative. My hopes were dashed about two miles into the drive when he began speaking. You're so lucky. If I hadn't come along, you would have eventually collapsed and melted into the ground. No one drives down this road. No one. He reached behind his seat and withdrew a large hammer. I could pull over right now, drag you out of the truck and beat your brains in with this. I could leave your dead body in the middle of the road and nobody would find you for days. I was speechless. I was searching for words to respond to his odd statement when he began to slow down and then pulled over to the side of the road. I guess he saw the look of horror on my face because he let out a loud chuckle. <laughs> Don't worry, kid. I'm not going to beat your head in with a hammer. I just have to take a piss. Why don't you come with me? Come on. We could stand side by side and piss together. Again, I didn't know how to respond to this, but I managed to spit out some words. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. The big man shrugged. Suit yourself. As he urinated on the side of the road, I searched my mind for alternatives to the situation I was in and came up empty. I was at the mercy of this huge, scary man. After he got back into the truck and started driving again, he started whistling a tune that I didn't recognize. 
Then he pointed to the side of the road. I found a dead body there once. You did? Yep. Car broke down just like yours. He had been walking for miles all alone, just like you. But nobody came and picked him up, so he died. I noticed a smirk come across his face as he reminisced. Buzzards had already stripped his body by the time I got there. You ever seen a human body stripped by buzzards? I shook my head emphatically. It's quite the sight. I guessed it to be about 20 miles from where he picked me up when we came up on an old service station. Two pumps still stood in front, but were rusted and falling apart. Most of the windows in the service garage were shattered. The windows on the rest of the building were intact, but covered in grime. To my chagrin, he slowed and stopped at the decrepit station. What do you think of my place? You live here? I asked because I could not imagine anyone living in such a decaying structure. Home sweet home. He opened his door, hopped out, and began to stretch. I spoke up. Uh, I thought you were going to take me to Coopertown. Patience. He said as he began walking toward the building. I watched on as he swung the front door to the building open and disappeared within. Once again I found myself probing for alternatives to get myself out of this odd situation and once again I came up with nothing. The motionless vehicle was starting to become an oven under the sun, so I stepped out of the vehicle and approached the crumbling building. I carefully walked through the door I saw him enter through and called out. When are you going to take me to Coopertown? The intimidating man stepped out from a back room. After I take a nap. He looked me up and down. I got a queen-size bed back here. You can take a nap with me if you'd like. I shook my head. Fine. You can go hitchhike out on the road if you want. But ain't no one coming. With that, he disappeared into the back and I found myself with two options. Walking another 30 miles in the heat to Coopertown, or waiting for Mr. Creepy Man to take me there. I stood out on the road in hopes that someone else would drive by, but the road was empty as far as the eye could see, and all I could hear was the wind whistling. The sun was too hot for me to stand on the road for long, so I took shelter inside the big man's gas station home. The place was filthy. There was a few empty shelves against the wall and a small counter that at one time must have housed the cash register. I meandered into the attached service garage where once, people like me who broke down might have found some real help. The concrete floor was stained with ancient oil, but that's where the resemblance of a once operational garage stopped. This place had been transformed into something else. From the ceiling, an array of various animal skulls and bones hung. Against the far end of the room, all kinds of edged weapons were hanging on the wall. Hunting knives, butcher knives, machetes, hatchets, and some of them appeared to have dried blood on the edges. 
In the corner of the room, I saw metal shackles meant for human wrists chained to the wall. I panicked and bolted out of the station. Clearly, my judgment was clouded by fear, and I made an impulsive decision rather than thinking things through, and I fled into the desert. I wasn't far when I heard the gas station doors slam shut, followed by the bellowing voice of the big man. Where are you, little boy? I didn't even look back, I just kept running. You can run, but you can't hide. As I ran through the desert, I stumbled over a rock and collapsed onto the scorching desert sand. I started to rise up, but froze when I found myself face to face with a rattlesnake. The snake was curled into a defensive ball. It was clearly frightened and ready to strike if I made any sudden moves. Its rattle was shaking vigorously, and the snake's head began to bob as if ready to strike. Suddenly, the huge man stepped next to me and kicked the snake away. I watched as it slithered off into the distance. The man grabbed me by the arm and hoisted me up off the ground. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, are you, kid? I shrugged. Now do you want me to take you to Coopertown, or do you want to risk it out here in the desert? My mouth was bone dry, but I managed to speak. Coopertown. The big man nodded. I figured. Let's go. We got in the car and didn't say much for the next ten miles or so. And then, as before, he broke the silence. Did you think I was going to kill you? Before I could even respond, he looked at me and read my expression. You did, didn't you? I smiled and nodded. Silly boy. Why would I do that? when you're worth so much more to me alive. I furrowed my brow in confusion. That was a weird statement. What do you mean? The man didn't respond. He simply smirked and began humming the song My Favorite Things from The Sound of Music. After another mile or so, I spotted a semi-truck parked on the side of the road. An average-sized man wearing a camouflage shirt was standing at the rear of the truck with his leg propped up on the bumper as if he were waiting for someone. The big man pulled over on the side of the road, stopped, removed his key, and looked at me. I'll be right back. I watched on as the big man approached the camouflaged shirt man. As the two men spoke, they often pointed to me. It was obvious that I was the subject of their conversation. Then I noticed the camouflage shirt man pull a large wad of cash from his pants pocket and hand it to the big man. Camouflage shirt man then began to undo the latch on the back of his truck. That was enough for me. I may be a small, wiry guy who doesn't know how to fight, but I do know a thing or two about motor vehicles. My older brother was a repo man. He knew how to hotwire a car better than anyone, and he had taught me how to do it. I'm not very good at it, and hadn't even tried it in years, or I may have attempted this earlier, but now I felt as though I had no other choice. I leaned over and began the hotwiring process. Fortunately for me, it was only a couple of minutes before the engine to the old delivery truck roared to life. 
As I slid over into the driver's seat, the big man was racing toward the vehicle screaming, and the man in the camouflage shirt was retrieving a gun that was tucked into his pants. I pounded on the gas. I heard a couple of shots of gunfire but never looked back until I reached Coopertown. Coopertown had a bus station. I ditched the old delivery truck in the bus station parking lot, bought a ticket for California, and got the hell out of there. I'll never know for certain what kind of danger I was in that day, but one thing's for sure, I'll never drive through the desert again. Serpent Woman My wife and I decided to take a nice relaxing vacation in Gulf Shores, Alabama. We wanted some quality time by the ocean, so we rented a beachfront condo for a week. Our first day there, we spent the majority of the afternoon at the beach. My wife went swimming while I sat in a beach chair admiring the waves crashing against the shore. I decided to appease my inner child and build something in the sand. I wasn't sure what I wanted to build. I'm not much of an artist. I got a C in art back in high school, and I think that was only because the teacher felt sorry for my lack of artistic talent. I started by creating a large mound of sand and realized that it had a slight resemblance to a head, so I decided to give it some facial features. I squeezed my fingers together and pressed them into the sand head and created a couple of ovals that could kind of pass as eyes. I was then able to carve in a large mouth that seemed to have a maniacal aspect to it. I thought it would be fun to put a couple of shells in the eye holes to make them look like actual eyeballs, so I started walking the shoreline searching for two identical shells. This task proved more difficult than I originally anticipated. I mean, the beach was scattered with thousands of shells. Surely there'd be two that were similar in size, shape, and at least close in color. I was determined, and after a solid 15 minutes of searching, I found what I was looking for. The two shells I found were indistinguishable, and they were beautiful. They were oval-shaped with pale white edges. The centers of the shells were bright blue and swirled around into a black center. I mean, they looked like eyes. Had I not found them washed up on the shore, I would have thought that someone made them. They were beautiful. I picked up the impressive shells and placed them into the eye sockets of the beachhead I had formed in the sand. The second I pushed the shells into place, I felt a slight jolt shoot into my hands and up my arms. My body tensed up and I felt my head rattle. For a good two seconds, everything went silent, with the exception of a strange hissing noise, similar to that of a snake. Quickly, the natural sounds of the ocean returned. 
I took a deep breath and looked down into the sand face that was staring back at me. And for some reason, I felt inspired. I felt the need to create a masterpiece. Immediately I went to work on the sculpture. My hands and arms were moving in a feverish blur. It was almost as though something had taken control of me. I was on autopilot and was effortlessly creating something magnificent. I had arranged the face perfectly. It even had fantastic subtleties like visible cheekbones and temples. I had grabbed a nearby twig and used it to carve long, wild waves of hair, which could easily be mistaken for Medusa-like snake hair. I went back to the shore and grabbed several brittle white shells. I chipped them apart to resemble shark-like teeth and placed them in the mouth. And the body became a long, thick, serpent body. I twisted and turned it to give the appearance that it was wrapping around the legs of the beach chair. I used shells to meticulously carve scales in the body and form the end of the tail into a rattle. When I finished, I stood back in awe at what I had accomplished. It was truly amazing. When my wife returned from the ocean, she was dumbfounded. She knew as well as I did that I lacked artistic talent. But the counter-argument to that fact was staring us both in the face in the form of an incredibly lifelike, intricate, menacing serpent woman. My wife asked me how I was able to accomplish such a feat. I simply shrugged, for I had not the answer to her question. I, I don't know, I just kind of did it. The sad thing about it was that this was a sand sculpture. Once the tide rolled in, it would be washed away into nothing. Fortunately, we live in the day and age of amazing cameras, so we took several photos and videos of my work of art before calling it a day and heading back to the condo for the evening. That night, we engorged ourselves with oysters and shrimp at a local restaurant and then came back to the condo. We watched a little TV before we turned in. The next day, I woke up early. The first thing I thought of was the serpent woman. I wondered if the tide left any remnant of her, or if there would be no sign that she ever existed. I walked down to the beach chair I used the previous afternoon and was saddened to see that she was gone. There was nothing but moist sand where she once lay. The ocean had taken her away. Although this was expected, I still felt my body slump in disappointment as I turned to head back for the condo. That's when I saw her. It was the Serpent Woman! She was two beach chairs further up the beach, coiled around the beach chair's legs just as I had made her. She was high enough on the beach where the tide didn't reach her. But I was positive that the chair I sat in the day before was much closer to the water. I shrugged. Apparently, I had been mistaken. When my wife and I went back to the beach that afternoon, she was also surprised to see the serpent woman still intact. She, too, was under the impression that we were much closer to the ocean than that. That night, I dreamt of small snakes wriggling all over my body as the serpent woman slid into my bed, lashed her forked tongue out at me, 
and hissed. When I awoke, I was surprised to see a trail of sand on the sheet next to me. My wife and I had both showered since our last time at the beach, so there shouldn't have been any sand in the bed at all, let alone as much as there was. That afternoon, we went back to the beach again. The serpent woman was still there in as pristine shape as ever, which surprised us both. Even if she was safe from the wrath of the ocean tides, surely some jackass kid would have come around and kicked her apart by now. But there she was. Perfect. Except, I noticed something unusual about her. When I sculpted her, I made her tail twist around all four legs of the beach chair. Now, her tail was only twisted around two of the legs, and her head seemed to be at more of a tilt. I stood over her to see if there was anything else that seemed off about her, and I swear for a moment, I thought I saw her mouth curl into a smile. I closed my eyes and shook my head. When I looked back down at her, her mouth was back in its original menacing position. That night, I had a horrible dream. I dreamt that my wife was screaming in terror. I tried to open my eyes, but they were sealed shut. I tried to move, but was paralyzed. I could hear the sinister hissing of snakes and the deafening shake of rattles, and then all went silent. The next morning, I woke up in a cold sweat, but was comforted when I was able to open my eyes and move my body. I let out an audible sigh of relief as I rolled over and attempted to put my arm around my wife, but she wasn't there. I rose up and looked at her empty side of the bed. I grabbed the top of the blanket in my hand and ripped it off the bed. My wife's side of the bed was covered in sand. I called out thinking perhaps she was in the bathroom, but there was no answer. I searched our entire condo, but it was empty. I hurried out onto the balcony to see if she was there, but she wasn't. I gazed out over the beach as the sun began to rise. She was standing ankle-deep in the ocean, staring up at the sky as night turned to day. I raced out of the condo and down to the beach. I stepped into the ocean next to my wife and took her hand into mine. She turned her head and smiled at me. Her blue eyes were as bright as ever. The problem was, my wife has brown eyes. The Man With No Name I was off to one hell of a start to my day. I overslept, had a run in my stocking, and nearly got killed at the four-way intersection near my home when some idiot ran the stop sign. 
they came to a screeching halt just inches from me. Fortunately, it was my day off, and I only had a few errands to run before I could go back home and enjoy myself. First, I was starving. There was a quaint little diner in town that made the best fried egg sandwiches. That would definitely hit the spot. I entered the diner and was disappointed at how packed the place was. I was going to have to wait much longer than I'd prefer for that egg sandwich. That's when I noticed the conspicuous man sitting at the end of the counter. He wore a dark suit with a pork pie hat and was smoking a corncob pipe. His face was unusually long and he had the most striking, bright blue eyes I had ever seen. They were mesmerizing. He was reading a paper but glanced my way several times. Something about the way he kept looking at me made me feel uneasy, so I decided to leave and go to my next stop. I had my eye on a beautiful dress for some time, and today and today only, it was on sale. I wanted to get to the store and buy it before someone else did. I got to the store just as the doors opened and made my way toward the section I knew the dress to be in. As I turned down an aisle, I saw the dress hanging at the end of the rack. It was just waiting for me to take it home. I stopped in my tracks when I saw the man again. He stepped out from behind the clothes rack, stood next to the dress I wanted, and stared at me. He didn't have a menacing appearance, quite the contrary. He held a friendly grin and his striking eyes were extremely welcoming. But who was he? Why was he here? Was he following me? As badly as I wanted that dress, I wanted to get away from that man. I rushed out of the store, got into my car, and drove to the bank. I had to deposit a check and withdraw a little bit of cash. I entered the lobby and made my way toward the bank teller. That's when I heard someone behind me call out to me. Hi, Lori. I turned around to see who it was and was shocked to see the same man again. He was just standing in the middle of the lobby staring at me. How did he get here before I did? And how did he know my name? Who are you? I asked. I don't have a name. Before I could even react to that odd response, he asked me a question. Would you like to come with me? He held out his hand for me to take. I quickly backed away. No, I don't want to go with you. I turned and quickly hurried out of the bank. As I got into my car and started it, I looked up to see the man standing outside of the bank. He waved to me. I peeled out of the parking lot and sped all the way toward home. When I approached the four-way stop near the intersection of my house, I noticed several police cars and an ambulance. Apparently there had been a very bad car accident. I stopped and got out of my car for a closer look and saw... My car! It was my car that I was looking at in the middle of the intersection. It was crushed like an accordion. But it couldn't be my car. I, I was in my car. 
I turned to look at my car, which I had just pulled up in, but it was gone. I turned back to the intersection and saw them pulling a dead, mangled body out of the driver's seat of my crumpled up car. It was me. The dead body was me. Are you ready to come with me now? I turned and the man with no name was standing next to me. I looked into his bright, hypnotic eyes. I'm dead, aren't I? The man nodded and held out his hand. I took it. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen on. We'll see you soon. Very soon.